So welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I'm your host, Professor Thomas Scheren from Edwards Life Sciences, Germany. And today we will be speaking about intraoperative hypertension when using hypertension prediction index software during major non-cardiac surgery. And here we have invited Professor Bernd Saugel from the University Hospital Hamburg-Eppendorf in Germany. Uh, this episode, by the way, is kindly supported by Edwards Life Sciences. So, Professor Zauber, we learned in the recent decade that there is an association with intraoperative hypotension, mostly defined as a mean arterial pressure below 65 millimeters of mercury, and adverse patient outcomes, such as acute kidney injury, myocardial injury, and even death. In the EU Hypertech Registry, where you were the leading investigator, you were looking at the incidence, duration and severity of intraoperative hypertension when using HPI software. So my quest, first question would be, can you tell us why you believe it was necessary to set up this registry? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you for being the host. And it will be a pleasure to talk to you about the EU Hypertect registry. And coming back to your question, well, back then when we started discussing this study, the predictive uh, monitoring software, the hypertension prediction index software was um, published, was validated in first observational uh, studies, of course. And there were a few randomized control trials with kind of contradicting results. One small randomized control trial published in the JAMA showing that there is a substantial redu uh, reduction in hypotension when you use predictive monitoring. Another one, substantially larger trial, but still a small trial from the Cleveland Clinic, showed that there is no difference in uh, hypotension when you, use when you assign patients to having predictive monitoring or not. So we were thinking about um, different trial designs. We were thinking about doing another large randomized control trial, or we were thinking about um, other study designs, um, for example, building up a registry, building up uh, something that you can um, do without randomizing individual patients. And uh, we felt that it might be necessary to have a look at what really happens in the operating rooms when you use HPI. And therefore, we conceived this study to build up a huge um, European multicenter prospective observational registry in patients having non-cardiac surgery with the primary aim to simply describe the incidence, duration and severity of intraoperative hypertension when using this predictive monitoring. Thank you. And, and I read that this registry was intended to create so-called real-world evidence. Can you explain why there was a need for real-world evidence and, and what's the difference as compared to those RCTs or randomized control trials that you mentioned? Yes, of course, when you do a randomized controlled trial, randomizing individual patients, um, there's, uh, well, there's a lot of uh, administrational work around it, a lot of contracting, it takes a lot of time, it is very expensive, and um, trials may not necessarily reflect um, what, uh, what happens in the real world in the operating room, because um, usually centers do not include huge um, numbers of patients. Uh, there may, even if it's a randomized controlled trial, there may still be some kind of a selection bias because clinicians or researchers tend to include a certain 
a subgroup of patients who are well, easily give informed consent or whatever. So there are um, a randomized controlled trial for me still is the best way to study an intervention and to study whether there is a causal relationship. But back then we thought, okay, there are the first randomized controlled trials, but what you don't have, we don't have the experience from the real world, from the field, from the operating rooms. How much hypertension is there if you use predictive monitoring? And that is why we came up with this study design, a real world evidence study, a registry study. And there are some advantages, including that you can include a large number of patients in a relatively short period of time. Um, because you uh, basically can include uh, a lot of patients um, because there's no complicated treatment protocol uh, and uh, the speed of recruitment can be very high and um, yeah there uh, we build up a network of uh, of, of hospitals uh, across Europe in five European countries who were first of all experienced in using um, the uh, predictive monitoring, we may come back to that later, but uh, centers that also have the infrastructure of uh, for, for being part of, of, of a study like this. And yeah, we may come back to that, but that's why this was quite successful. Yeah, great. So let's talk about the, the timeline in a second. But first, can you tell us about these participating centers? How did you select these? Yeah, those were centers um, in which clinicians already used predictive monitoring. So we wanted to avoid that there's some kind of a learning curve within the study so that uh, clinicians first need to become uh, familiar with the technology and the, um, uh, the, the predictive value per se. And uh, then you know that there's a secondary screen which suggests what underlying cause uh, hypotension may have. So it's... Uh, it's not complicated, but at least you need to be familiar with the system. And therefore, we only included centers that already used predictive monitoring. And um, this is a strength of, uh, of the registry because it shows you what you can do with the technology when you re really know how to use it. And on the other hand, of course, it's a limitation because uh, this not necessarily translates to centers um, in which clinicians are not used to, to do that. So our inclusion criterion for the center was that um, clinicians were familiar uh, with uh, predictive monitoring. All right, uh, thank you. So, so coming back to the, the timeline, which you already mentioned, so how long did it actually take to recruit the, the patients, uh, which was quite a substantial number, more than uh, 700 patients you included? And, and, and how long did the study take from the beginning, let's say from starting uh, the study, the paperwork, the applications and so on, to finalization of the study being the publication, which was about two years ago, as far as I remember. Yeah, well, we included 749 patients in 12 centers in five European countries, in France, in Germany, in Italy, in Spain and in uh, the UK. and. Uh, the timeline was quite impressive. So we included the first patient in the registry in um, September 2021. So this was first patient in. And uh, we included those 749 uh, patients uh, until May 2022. So this means we included all of those patients in nine months. And that was still COVID time, right? As far as I remember. That is correct. But yeah, well, uh, at least in our institution, um, even during the pandemic, uh, we uh, 
almost worked at full capacity all the time. Um, of course, they were a little bit, uh, it was during the COVID time, but yeah, despite COVID, we were able to do that in nine months. And um, then we published the protocol uh, September 2022. And uh, then after 18 months after the first patient entered the registry, we uh, had the full publication uh, showing the main results. Excellent. Congratulations. And, and that would not have been possible with a randomized controlled trials, probably. Randomized controlled trial probably would have taken longer. So um, this is something that is, uh, well, it's a theoretical question. We don't know. But uh, from our experience, randomizing individual patients takes longer than just uh, including consecutive patients in a registry. Yeah. Excellent. So now let's talk about the results. So what did you find in terms of hypotension? You, you were looking at the incidence, the severity and the duration. Can you tell us about those results? Of course, um, perhaps it's important to first describe the primary endpoint. The primary endpoint is the median time weighted average mean arterial pressure below 65. And this is something that uh, requires a little bit of explanation. So we know from uh, a lot of registry analysis that the population harm threshold uh, for organ injury is a mean arterial pressure below 65. So this is where the 65 comes from. And then, of course, it makes a difference how uh, uh, how much below 65 you are and for how long you are below 65. And to capture both of these um, things, the severity of hypertension and the duration of hypertension, you can have a look at the area under certain thresholds. So whenever you are below that threshold, you start counting how long does hypertension take and you start looking at how uh, severe is hypertension and then at the end, you kind of sum up all those um, uh, areas below the curve. And because different uh, surgeries have a different duration of surgery, uh, you need to normalize for the monitoring time. Otherwise, the duration of surgery may uh, influence your results. So then you divide this area under the threshold by the duration you monitor the patient, which usually is the duration of surgery. And then you have the median, uh, the time-weighted average mean arterial pressure, and our primary endpoint was the median time-weighted average. We then also looked at another uh, secondary endpoints, uh, like time-weighted averages below other thresholds. We looked at the number of episodes below uh, a couple of blood pressure thresholds, absolute duration, relative durations, um, and we had some exploratory endpoints uh, related to organ injury. And if we come back to the primary endpoint. So the median uh, time-weighted average mean arterial pressure below 65 was 0.03 millimeters of mercury. And I think we need to put that into context because it's a number that we are not, not used to. So uh, 0.03 is very little hypotension, and, uh, but you, know, you may compare it to uh, other uh, studies or trials and for example we were just uh, talking about um, a study from the United States where uh, they found that uh, an observational, uh, observational uh, quality initiative uh, study where the time-weighted average was 0.6 I guess and uh, if we look at other randomized or if you look at randomized control trials on predictive monitoring for example in the control groups of those um, trials, um, uh, uh, time-weighted average uh, mean arterial pressure was, for example, 
around 0.4 or 0.3. So um, we reduced that by a factor of 10. So our primary endpoint 0.03 in the time weighted average is very little hypotension. So you almost eliminated hypotension, if, if, if we may say. There was very little hypotension, yeah. Okay, okay, thank you. <laughs> so, um, and you also already uh, compared that in, in, in terms of uh, what, what has been published in the literature. So even in those studies who did use those technology, it was even lower than that. And this is maybe due to the fact that the users were already experienced uh, with that technology. Would you uh, agree with that conclusion? Yeah, I would agree. What we cannot say is that there's a causal relationship between that type of monitoring and uh, the result that there was uh, almost no hypotension. But what we can say is that in those centers where clinicians were experienced with using this type of predictive monitoring in patients who had this predictive monitoring and who were treated by those clinicians, there was very little hypotension. And as you already mentioned, we cannot control it. Uh, or we cannot compare it to a control group because it was, what not, it was not a randomized trial, but we may do that uh, looking at historic data or propensity score matching uh, our patients. But at the moment, we can simply say there was very little hypotension when predictive monitoring was used by experienced clinicians. Excellent, thank you. Uh, besides those, uh, how I call it, the hypotension metrics, uh, you also looked at exploratory outcomes um, being bearing in mind that the study was not powered for these of course uh, exploratory outcomes like acute kidney injury and myocardial injury uh, what did you find can you tell us about what you found there yes of course before i come to that exploratory outcomes i may say a word about uh, a few more secondary endpoints and that maybe uh, listeners may understand better than the time weighted average so if we for example look at the number of episodes that were longer than one minute below a mean arterial pressure of 65. This was a predefined secondary endpoint. This median um, number was one. So the median number of more than one minute episodes was one episode, which of course is not much. And if you have a look at the median absolute duration below a mean arterial pressure of 65, this was two minutes. So when you think that the inclusion criterion was uh, sur uh, surgery expected to be last longer than 120 minutes, then if the median duration below 65 was two minutes, um, again, it reflects that, was, that there was relatively little hypotension. And um, regarding the uh, organ function outcomes, which of course are exploratory because the uh, study was by no means powered to, to investigate this and there is no control group to make any um, assumption that there is a causal relation, but uh, we had around about 9% uh, of the patients developed acute kidney injury, um, according to the Cadigo definitions, um, which is uh, lower than uh, than in other studies and and and, and trials, including. Uh, uh, then the rates reported in, in, in other studies and trials, but of course uh, you cannot directly compare those patients, uh, our patients, to the patients in the other studies. But it was 9% and uh, we used creatinine on an, uh, as availability basis. So if, it was, uh, uh, if there were creatinine measurements for clinical reasons, we used those. And the same is true for myocardial injury. So I would say that we 
uh, massively underestimated the rate of myocardial injury because that is always the case if you do not systematically uh, measure troponin. But myocardial injury occurred in around about 3% of the patients. Um, yeah, it is what it is. And it, uh, we may get better insights into this uh, if we are able to do um, post hoc secondary analysis looking, looking at other data sets that may uh, include patients who, can, who we can propensity uh, score match to our patients. So, so I get your argumentation uh, about the myocardial injury because you're saying, first of all, we don't have uh, exhaustive number of measurements in, in those patients. I think it was around 200 patients who had a troponin measurement of that 700 patients. Uh, so this is maybe uh, too low to, to draw any conclusions from. And the second reason may be because we all know that myocardial injury might go silent, so it's not detected by the patient, so it's not triggering uh, uh, troponin measurements to be taken by the clinicians taking care of their patients. But for the acute kidney injury, I'm, I'm not sure if I would, would agree, because first of all, you, you did have in almost, uh, or in the majority of patients, you did have uh, creatinine measurements. And for those who, where we don't have is it not fair to conclude if the clinicians did not see a reason to take a creatinine measurement, there was probably no reason indicating that there is a kidney problem. So uh, they probably had no normal urine output. They had no whatever signs of kidney insufficiency. Would that be a fair conclusion or would you say as a scientist, mm, be careful? It's an assumption. <laughs> it's, uh, you can assume that. You may say that if there's no uh, creatinine value in the system, then there was no kidney problem. Uh, as a trialist, I would say if I, if I use uh, acute kidney injury as an endpoint in a trial, you need to, uh, you need to have a look at uh, creatinine systematically, and the same is true for troponin when you look for myocardial injury. Um, you would, of course, notice, uh, notice if a patient has renal replacement therapy, but most of the patients having postoperative acute kidney injury, of course, uh, are captured uh, through the creatinine values. So I wouldn't agree completely from a, from a methodological perspective. I would love to have all the creatinine uh, values systematically, but it's probably a fair assumption that there may be not uh, stage three kidney injury if there's not a single postoperative value, but this is more or less an assumption. Okay, thank you. So thank you for sharing that results with us. So, so summarizing, what would be the key messages you would derive from this registry? Well, in terms of the hypertension metrics, I would say that um, the incidence duration and severity um, of intraoperative hypertension uh, was low. Um, so there was uh, little hypotension in patients having predictive monitoring treated by clinicians who are experienced with using predictive monitoring. So in patients included in this registry, um, the primary outcome, the time-weighted uh, average mean arterial pressure below 65 was 0.03, which again is kind of an abstract uh, number for most of uh, the listeners. But if you compare it to previous uh, research, you will see that it's um, uh, uh, that it's uh, very, very little hypotension. In terms of the other exploratory outcomes, um, I would say we need, first of all, more analysis. So we need to dive deeper into our data and um, 
to draw a final conclusion that predictive monitoring actually causes a reduction in post-operative uh, complications, organ injury, uh, we would still need uh, another study trial design. Okay, thank you for sharing the results of this EU HyProtect study with us. And I understood there is more to come uh, from this study. Even you will further deep dive into the data and see if there are other interesting findings to be reported. So we're looking uh, forward to that and maybe even follow-up studies uh, based on the, those findings. So thank you very much, Professor Saugel, for this interview, for sharing uh, these uh, uh, interesting findings uh, with us. Um, and uh, the paper is open access published, so everyone can download it for free if he wants to uh, reread the results. Um, and uh, yeah, I would also like to thank everyone for listening to this episode and to remind you that the ESAIC uh, releases monthly podcasts on the ESAIC website and on various streaming other, other uh, streaming platforms and we hope you will join us also for the next one thank you very much This episode is sponsored by Edwards Life Sciences.